can put it on right now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Give me your finger. I will, I'm sorry. You okay, though? So I want to first of all. I'm not telling you. I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. If you don't want to follow inside, so I want the first thing I want to do. I we haven't been together in a few weeks, and there was one Rashi, which I feel is so important and missed over. It's not just this Rashi. The problem is the Torah is very big. And there's a lot in it. And, I mean, everything's in it, as we're going to see tonight a little bit more. And I think that this, for the world that we live in, I think that this Rashi is incumbent upon us to learn and to really live by. So I think everybody should take a Chumash for this. I mean, after this, you do what you want for the two these two points in, in, in Chumash. Who are those guys? Where are you going? Oh, how are you guys? Happy that you're here. Thank you. So this, no, no. So these two Rashi's. I'm going to read the first one here. Is in Parshas Miketz. Give a little background, okay? And then I'm telling you, this is very interesting, and to me. I th- and I'm going to imagine that this annoys people a lot, and I, and I want to point this out. Um, I knew a girl who, she converted to Judaism, and this problem, which, the, which Rashi focuses on, pretty much knocked her out. She, you know, it really, it did a number on her. Uh, not, not Rashi, the problem that Rashi is focusing on. Um, we're, we're here in the Parsha Miketz, just for a moment. Go back in history of the Chumash. Yosef has now become the viceroy in charge in Egypt of all the grain and all of all the wealth. Yaakov and the children and his sons have no idea that Yosef's there. There's no idea. The only thing that they do know is that the whole world is going through a major, major famine something let's say even more potent than the um, the great depression of the 1920s remember the only reason that we're not in a great depression now because we're in an economic downturn is because thank god the agricultural part of the united states is still producing an immense amount of food that's the only reason that we're not hit right now in a major depression otherwise we would be because in the 1920s, when you had that major depression, I think it was 1927, I think, whatever year it was. Does everybody know what year it was? I think it was whatever. 33. It was 30. It was 29 to 33. 29, the man says. So the the problem was it wasn't only financial. It wasn't just Wall Street. And it may, sometimes media or historians, they talk about it, like Wall Street crashed. That's all true. But the real problem was that there was no food. And that was the problem. So anyway, anyway, the whole world is is finan- is 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 in a in a famine. Like Ethiopia, horrible, terrible. Okay, and then Yaakov does something. He decides that he's going to send his sons down to Egypt to get food, right? We all know that part of the story. He sends his sons down. 
Now, here's the problem that we sometimes read it really quickly and glance over. Was Egypt a morally, um, a moral compass for the world? No, no. Egypt was considered the most decadent of societies on the earth at that time. Religious Jews, specifically a person like Yaakov, does he go, is he going to send his kids down to the good old-fashioned 42nd Street at Times Square before, you know what I mean, before it was cleaned up? Let me do for the youngins over here. There was a place called 42nd Street and, I can't help it, 8th Avenue. And that was like bad place. Came along a guy by the name of Rudolph Giuliani, and he cleaned it up. So today, you have the Disney store, and you got all that stuff with it. That It was the worst, right? It was, it was terrible down there. It's reverting a little bit, but it was really bad. It was really bad. So would Yaakov want to send his sons there? Would a Rebbe from Meir Sha'arim, I'm not saying it from Meir Sha'arim, but you know what I mean? Would a Rebbe, would he send his kids down there? No. That's the last place he would send his kids. As a matter of fact, if you look at the story, where does Yaakov end up moving? And when he goes to Egypt, does he end up moving into Egypt? They go to Goshen. They make their own little ghetto. It's literally away from Egypt because Yaakov doesn't want his grandchildren, his children and grandchildren to be in the middle of Egypt. So therefore they never moved in Yosef's in Egypt. Yosef is symbolic for the Jew that's able to live and in the middle of all the garbage and still be the tzaddik. And Yaakov, with his sons Yehud and everybody else, they're living in the ghetto. They're away. They, you know, that they're, they're, they've decided to isolate themselves from, you know, from from the environment and to live in New Square. You know, in essence, that's that's what that's what he was doing. Okay, but something happened. Something happened that Yaakov decided that he's going to send his sons down to Egypt. What happened? Why would he send his sons down there? There was no food, right? So if there's no food, that's how we read it, but that's not the truth. You're going to read in Rashi that that's absolutely not the truth. But we make that assumption when we read the Pesukim that the, the verses, we make the assumption there was no food, as the verse says, we'll read in a second, and Yaakov therefore sent his kids down because if there's no food, you have no choice but to go to Manhattan. Even though you don't want to go to Manhattan because you know it's a very immoral area, right? But if there's no food, what do you do? You go to Manhattan. That's what you got to do. Look at the Rashi and Pesukim, and then I'm going to read Rashi, and it's it's absolutely baffling, not baffling, it's eye-opening <coughs> about how we have to live our lives, and unfortunately, sometimes we're not so good about this. So the Pesukim, it's Perak Membez, uh, Pesukim Aleph. Um, I don't know where that is. Do you guys have here? If you give me one, it's 232 in the English translation. Okay, so Pesachala says, Vayar Yaakov, and Yaakov saw, he saw that there was food in Egypt, right? He's reading the newspaper. He hears, that I guess, however they communicated in those days, he hears that there's food down in Egypt. Vayomer Yaakov Lebanov. So Yaakov says to his children, Lama Tisra'u. How does he translate it? How does he translate the words? 
Let's see if he follows Rashi on it. Lama Tisro'u. Why do you make yourselves conspicuous? Why do you make yourself conspicuous? Look at Rashi on this. Okay? In that Pasuk Aleph, in the middle of Rashi, I'm sorry for those that don't have Rashi, but you'll see what he says. Lama So Rashi says, Lama Atzmachem. Why are you making yourself visible? Bifnei b'nei Yishmal, in front of the Arabs, Ubnei Esav, and in front of the let's say the Christians or in front of the the children of Esav, Kiluatem Savim. Why are you making it that you guys are okay? Why? Because they had plenty of food. What's going on over here? How in the world, when there's an economic crisis, do you go out and buy a brand new BMW stretch coupe? How do you do that? How do you go when the world can't afford, can't afford mortgages and keep on breaking down buildings and just like stick it in the eyes of people of Esau and Yishmael? That's what Yaakov said. That's when you hear what's going on over here. The truth was, Yaakov had food. He didn't have to go down to Egypt. He didn't have to go down to Egypt. He didn't have to send his children to Egypt. But if the world is suffering, then you can't make it look like you're doing the Jews are fine. We got no problem in the middle of Queens, Brooklyn, Flatbush, Muncie, Five Towns, Hollywood, Miami, North Miami, Boca. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. That's what Yaakov sent. He sent his kids to the deepest area of Tuma so that it would look to the non-Jews like they're also part of the pain. You're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to go and buy a his and hers gold Rolls Royce. I, I, I saw him. I won't. I'm saying you can't do that, Ron. That's, what, that's this part. He says to his children, how can you make yourself look conspicuous? How do you walk around when everybody's falling apart and now is the time to break, you know, like to... No, that doesn't mean... So I had a chavrusa. You, many of you heard of the, the person. His name was Sruli Reisman, Rabbi Reisman of Flatbush. So he's my chavrusa. His father owned a company, and he was the... He had a brother who passed away when he was young. And so he, he, he owned the company. You might have heard of Reisman Cakes. So he owned Reisman Cakes. So when he was when he got married, his father bought him his house. I mean, listen, if you're wealthy, you know, father bought him a house. So he went to Rav Palm, and he because his wife wanted. Now it's a funny thing because the world changes, the world changes. When I took this place over two and a half years ago, it was wall to wall carpet upstairs. Okay. <laughs> The world changes. That's being generous. There the, was a time when carpet was like, like, a, like a thing. I remember growing up in Connecticut, we had like to have wall-to-wall plush carpet was like, like it was a thing. Nobody wants carpet now. Everybody wants marble tiles or some other kind of tile. They have a marble. This isn't marble. This is um, Italian tile. But what? You're wood. People like wood. Things change. But in those days, in the 80s, it was carpet. That was that was that was the thing. So my friend Sully Reisman's wife wanted to have wall-to-wall carpet. 
And my friends, Sruli Wise, I'm not Wise, Sruli uh, Reisman. I have friends, Sruli Wise. So Sruli Reisman went to Rav Palm and asked Rav Palm if maybe it's too much, you know, too much. Like this Rashi's saying over here, you know, maybe it's too much. Buying a, having your father buy a house for you is not too much in essence because the fa- you need a place to live. The house is a regular Flappish style house. It was nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. And Rav Palm answered him. It's very interesting. Rav Palm <coughs> said to him, "If the norm of society is to within the regular norm of society is to have carpet, then you can do it because then you're just living by." The norm of society. So people will say that you're a little wealthier. You know what I mean? He's got wall-to-wall car versus a... What was it called? The uh, runner? In, huh? A runner? No, there was a runner, and then there was a... What was it called? An area rug. An area rug. That's right. In the middle. So I remember buying an area rug. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> that, I have one right now. It was, that, it was a different world in those days, you know? But... That's what Rav Palm said. If that's the norm, nobody's telling you that you can't have a car. When I grew up, when again, I'm going back a little bit in history, but in the 80s, so even in the 70s, I got a car in the 70s. I had a, a Valiant. You guys never saw a Valiant. It was terrible. But it worked. It worked. It was a Dodge. And then I had a, um, a Honeybee. You know Honeybee was? A Datsun B210. But the bottom line was, they were beat up cars. They were just they were, they worked, but they were <laughs> but they were beat up cars. Now today the the style is not to have the type of cars that break down every every week. <laughs> you know, this doesn't. You know, you guys again. You're not gonna know what I'm talking about. But I would wake up in the winter and have to take a pen and stick it down the carburetor <laughs> and give it a shot of uh, of uh, of uh, what was it? You use it, ether. A shot of ether to to make it work. So nobody's saying that you have to do that. But at the same time, you you know, going a Maserati, really. You really need a Maserati when you're on the, you know, the BQE in the afternoon. A lot of pickup in those two feet, you know, that you're moving. I mean, you really need that, you know, but you're sticking it in people's eyes. That's what that is. It's sticking it in the eyes. And that's what Yaakov says. What do you need to stick it in to the eyes of Esau and Yishmael that, that we're okay, you know. We're, we're okay. We got it. We got it made. We have Maseratis. We have what's another really expensive stupid car? Porsche. I, I, uh, Porsche. I saw some Porsches recently. It's a new thing. People are driving Porsches. First of all, well, there's another one. Alfa Alfa Romeos. Now Alfa Romeos are not good cars. They're not. They're, they're not. They're not known to be. Or even Range Rovers are not comfortable. They're not known to be highly comfortable. I don't know. You spent in Afghanistan. What were you in? And I in Iraq. What kind of truck were you in? A Hummer? Yeah, Hummer. Can pay me to get another one. <laughs> anyway, so that's the deal. That's the deal. I to me this is a very important Rashi because it's a statement that we really have to live by. And it seems to be a little hard sometimes. Now I have my own personal benefit of the doubt for the Jewish people who unfortunately find this Rashi difficult. You know what I mean? 
there's some people find this a little difficult not to to hold back. So I'll tell you what my personal benefit out, and then I certainly will have people throw eggs at me. But I feel that in the Holocaust, and you know, the, half of the Jewish world are, are, are from Holocaust background, right? And half of the Jewish world from Sparden, who had nothing to do with the Holocaust in essence. But the Jews who from the Holocaust, they were stripped in every way of every type of honor and of everything. And I think that in some way afterwards, their children wanted to have some level of honor and self-esteem. That doesn't give any reason for today to do it, but passes itself down. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Whatever. But we have to be careful on this one. Because I, I, I really believe, growing up in Canada, I, I think that there's, that I don't, I'm not going to feel guilty in even the slightest iota, but we have to be careful not to cause anti-Semitism, you know? And sticking it when the world is going through hard times, you got to be careful with that. that. That's what I think. Yeah. It's getting deleted. Oh, that, that part's getting, no, yeah. only that little piece there with Hannah, mm -hmm. <coughs> that's my own personal feeling about her writings. And it might not be fair, because I haven't read her stuff in like 30 years, so... So I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to diss her when I haven't read it recently. Can just get the loose. The next thing. Look at the beginning of this week's parsha. I want to see it. Let me show it to you. I'm curious. Look, uh, let's go to Vayigash. Okay. That's this week's parsha. Yeah. This is one of my favorite things. I think I heard Brokham said something about not like lowering the blinds as soon as the normal goes out or something to the effect. For the same idea. I never heard him say that, but it would make sense. It would make sense. You know? Yeah, giant yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know. Big giant You've got to be careful with these things. you got to be careful. You know? So, I want to show you something interesting. It, it has to do... I'm sorry. I'll just give him a nap. I just, so, uh, Joe said there was a convert had a problem with the, the lesson? No, what happened was she lived in L.A. and she found herself surrounded by very ostentatious, that's where ostentatious? Yes. Ostentatious, wealthy, wealthy Jews. And it, it was very hard for her. It was very hard for her. Because she felt that everything in Judaism has to, not everything, but she felt from everything that she learned in Judaism that being humble and modest was a, uh, a proper approach. And in the middle of the part of L.A. that she was living in, it was not that humble and that, and that modest. And it gave her a run, an emotional run for her money, you know? And listen, everybody's got stuff that bothers them. And that's an area in religion that we all have to deal with. I could care less. I mean, honestly, right now, if you if a person bothers, I when somebody comes to me and is troubled by the age of the universe, I don't really. To me, that was nothing which really shook my religion. Somebody, or not shook me, but, you know, gave me a run emotionally. You want to say that you came from an amoeba? That's what you want to believe? You want to say that you're a direct descendant from some, you know, uh, extension of, of, an, of some kind of ape or chimpanzee? You want to do that? 
I don't care. Didn't, you know what I mean? That never, that never got me going. You know, Charles Darwin. But yeah, that never. No, I. I mean, I thought about it. I've read about it, but I didn't really. You want to talk <coughs> about it. everybody's got their thing. By me, it was the issue of the mitzvahs the rabbanon, what the rabbis can do, what they can't do, what defines the Sanhedrin. You know what I mean? That was always a little, not always, but that was an issue. You know, you know. That was that gave me my personal run for my money for a few, you know, for a little bit. And Baruch Hashem, thank God I'm clear. But I'm just saying, everybody has got their own personal struggles. Some people are very, very, have bad, terrible tempers, right? Other people are mild by nature. Some people are such pacifists that they can almost get shot and killed by a terrorist and feel bad for them, right? And then you have other people that, you know, you know, have no problem taking a knife and, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's got different things to work on. So this girl had that area that it really, I think it bothers everybody to some extent, but this really was in her eyes, you know, that, that's what I meant. It was, uh, everybody's got different stuff. I, okay. okay, so let's do this over here. Now, this is really, I find this, half of you know this maybe, but I found this to, just to be one of the more beautiful things in Torah. There's a Mishnah in Pirkei Ovis that says, Ben Bag Bag Omer. It's the end. It's the second. Pirkei Ovis is really five chapters. In in the Mishnah, Pirkei Ovis, written by Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, there are five chapters. Then there's a sixth chapter, which is a Brisa. A brisa has the same power as a mishnah. A brisa has this, is the same time period. It's written by the Tanaim. But a brisa was written by other people of the, of the other Tanaim. That's the difference between the two. So you have five per chapters of mishnah, and then you have one chapter of brisa. Right? So the second to last mishnah, in Perkyovos says, then Bag Bag Omer, his name was Bag Bag, he was a gear. Bag Bag, Bez Gimel and Bez Gimel equals five and five, right? Bag is Bez Gimel, that's five. Then Bag Bag, the child of five and five, because it was at a time period where the non Jews were not very nice to people who converted. So therefore they he he called himself Ben Bag Bag, the child of Avraham and the child of Sarah. The same with the last Mishnah in Perkyovus, which is Ben Hey Hey, it's the same thing. The Toso says on that the same thing that he was also a child of converts, and therefore he called himself Hey Hey. The same the same thing. So Ben Bagbag said Ben Bagbag said Hafuchba Hafuchba. You have to stir it and stir. It. I mean, go through the Torah and go through the Torah. Kikula book is everything's there. Okay. So sometimes it's so clo- it's so there, and we don't even know about it. And then when you see it, it's like. Wow, that's right in your face. Rabbi Noah Weinberg used to say, you know that thing under your nose, that little pinch? That we say the angel pinched you. When did he pinch you? When you came out, right? Before that, you have all the Torah. Where is all the Torah? Under your nose, right? It's right there. That's what he used to say. So look at the Pasuk. It says, Vayigash love Yehuda. And Yehuda went forward. 
Vayomer, and he said, Be'adoni, please my master. So Yehuda goes forward, right? What's going on over here? Let's just go give a little back history. Yehuda, there's uh, Yosef is now the in charge, right? Yosef's in charge. And what does he do? He plays a little game, right? He plays a game, and he takes Binyamin as a captive. As, as a captive. Why? Because, you know, he put the, the goblet there. By the way, you know this goblet was like a magic, a magic... Um, you know those readers, they have a ball, a magic ball. So this is a magic goblet that you looked at the goblet and you were able to see the future. It was a cell phone, basically. So so it, 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 was a magic, it was a magic goblet, you know. And he was able, he'd look at it and he said, I, I know your name. It's Binyamid. Well, of course he knew his name. It was his brother. <laughs> but the brothers didn't know that. Nobody knew it. So he was able to say things like, you know, I bet you're, I'm just making this up, I bet you're allergic to beans or something, you know? Of course, he knew it because he knew his he knew his family. Or like, you know, your mother, I heard, your mother died. How do you know that? I can see it. Yeah. So that's what he did. So he planted, he planted it, right? It's a plant. But there was a problem. The problem was that... Yehuda took responsibility to bring back Benjamin back to his father. And what did Yehuda say? If I don't bring him, him down, because Yaakov did not want to bring Binyamin down to Egypt. The father didn't want it. He said, I lost my one, I lost one son already. And now you're going to take the baby. Right, the other <laughs> child of the wife that I love the most, right, Rachel's other son. You're gonna take him down to Egypt because you opened up your stupid big mouth, right, and said we had two brothers and one's not here. You opened your mouth, and now this guy who's crazy, right, a crazy lunatic who's who's running the whole country, like you know, like. like you can imagine what kind of, you know, he's running the country. He knows things about us. We don't know what's going on. You're going to bring him down? I'm not letting him go down there. So Yehuda says, I guarantee it. So first, before before that, Reuven went and said, I guarantee it. And if I don't bring him down, then my children should die. That's what, that's what he said. Right? So Yaakov said, that's not going to make me feel better that my grandchildren are now dead if, if you don't come through. So now I lose both sons and I lose my grandchildren. So Yaakov, so he, 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 um, Yaakov wasn't into that. So Yehuda goes forward and says, I guarantee you that I will take full responsibility. It says in the Pesach, I will be, have sinned to you forever which means that I'll lose my Olam Haba. And as I guarantee you, with my personal Olam Haba, I'm bringing this kid back. So now, Yudah's got a problem. Because this Meshiganah, crazy wild man, who's in control that there's nobody that can open his mouth. See, we live in this democratic society that we have a guy, Buddha judge, Buddha judge or whatever, who runs the whole airlines, right? And you can't talk. Nobody can do anything. He does what he wants. Right? It's crazy. That's not the way it was. 
They just cut your head off. That's it. There was nothing to talk about. It was good old-fashioned. Walk with your head. So that's why Yehuda goes forward. Because he's got to protect. He's got to get his own harbor back. Okay. Look at this. There's a thing called truck. Now we have one Balkriya here. Anybody else, Lane? Any Balkriya here? So if you... Okay. So if you look... Here, go over here. On this page over here. When you learn how to lane at your bar mitzvah, there's two ways of learning how to bar, learn how to lane. One way, and I'm not going to say what's better, God forbid, but one way is, is your bar mitzvah parsha. So the guy who's teaching you tapes it, or I don't know, they call it taping. What's it called today? Recording. Recording it. You record it. You don't tape it because no such thing as a tape recorder anymore. Right? Just like on Delta, we don't say good morning, men and uh, ladies and gentlemen. No more. Not allowed. But rather, we have to say hello, folks. That's true, by the way. Because the world is changing. Right? So it's not taping. It is recording. Okay. So there's one approach is that you record and then you sit back at home and you start, you know, doing it. That's one way. The other way is you learn the notes themselves and then you transfer the notes to the words, right? And that's how you learn. So these are the notes and they have names to them. Nobody notices them. Nobody pays attention to them. We just go over it quickly. We don't even pay attention to the notes, right? Except for the Balkriya who lanes beautifully if I must say so. Right? Thank you. But uh, except for that, nobody even pays attention. So if you skip a note, who cares? If you have a note, who cares? Does it mean anything? No. Wrong. Makes, makes me feel good. No, it means a lot. It means a lot. So look at this. This is really crazy. On the top of the first four words, there are four notes. There are four notes. I underline them in pink. Okay. So, number one, under the word Vayigash, a love, there's number one and two. That's on the third and fourth line. Kadma Vazla. If you notice, that's that's the note. It's called the Kadma Vazla. The little semi things. It's called Kadma Vazla. The next one is of Yehuda. That is known as a um, as a Revi. That's on the first line. And then over the word Vayomer Biadoni, you have number four and number five on the first line. So the, the words are in Hebrew, if you put together the name of the notes on top of these first four words, it's Kadma Vazla, Rivi'i, Unach Sego. That's the order of the words. The translation of these words are kadma, which means he got up. That's what the word means. He got up, va'ozla, and went forward. Rivi'ihu, the fourth. Munach, to hold back. Sego, his olam haba. That's what sego means, skula. So this this was, the Vilna Gon said this. And the Vilna Gon showed how each trop in every parsha has deep meaning. Kadma va'azla, why did the four, why did he get up and go forward, Revi, the fourth son? The fourth was, Yehuda was the fourth son. Unach sego, 
because he was trying to hold back his losing of Olam Haba. That's found in the truck. By love Yudah, that's how you lane it. And you don't even notice it, but yet it's giving you the hidden secrets over here. You want to know why Yehuda went forward and did all this? Because he needed to do the fourth one, he needed to be Munach Segol to hold back his Olam Haba. That's pretty cool. Isn't that pretty cool? Yeah. How many people? You knew this before. Okay, who else? Okay, so I have to do something to top Is this. Everywhere, Munach Segol. That's what it means. To hold back Well, Munach means to hold back. Uh-huh. Segol comes from the word Segula, which is your Olam Haba. How does that mix up with everything? I have no idea. I only know this specific one line from the Gra. You know, <laughs> that's the truth. That's all I know. But it sounds like it's good. I know it all over. Just to open it up, test me. No, I have no idea. But but to me, that's just like amazing. The one little these little things that we don't even pay attention to. Okay, so now we have 15 minutes, and I had a lot more to do, but I have to do one piece. Because this one piece is so freaky. We got to do this and whatever. Okay, so let me have an English translation to the Siddur. Okay. I saw this. I was at Baruch Hashem. I drove my daughter to Michael's. She needed to get something. And I was in the parking lot. And I opened up looking for something. And I this is unbelievable. This is from the Kedushas Levi. Levi is from the city of Bardichev. I'm going to show you something now. But what is Hasidism? What is Hasidus? Now, I, I don't know if I'm a Hasid or not. I certainly don't dress like a Hasid. I do many things that real Hasidim wouldn't do. But I learned Hasidus. That's the Torah of Hasidism. So you have many, many Jews who wear the attire of Hasidim, but they don't really learn Hasidus. And then you have people who are non-Hasidic, but they learn Hasidus. Hasidus was the, uh, was the knowledge and the Torah, the information that the Baal Shem Tov and his students passed on to us. The Kedusha Slavi, just for an understanding of who he was and when he came from, and then I'm going to show you this, and it's absolutely, I think that this is, this is very fascinating. Um, it'll take about 10, 15 minutes, okay? I can't help it, but you'll go home and you'll say, it's an interesting thought. Uh, Baal Shem Tov, you know, anybody know when he lived, when he died? He died in 1768, I think. You can look it up. Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. That's when he died. Now he had no sons. He had a daughter. Her name was 1768 to 1760. 1760. Okay. He had no sons. He had a daughter, Udal. And she had a son who's known as Reb Nachman of Breslov. So Reb Nachman was a grandchild of the Baal Shem Tov. <coughs> Reb Nachman lived at the same time, so we're talking about the Baal Shem, so when the Baal Shem Tov died, uh, Hasidism was taken over by Reb Menachem Mendel, who was known as the Mezerich Magid, okay? 
same time as the Mezritcha Magid, it's on the same, I'm sorry, the generation later, which is uh, the grandchild of the Baal Shem Tov, which we must, well, easy numbers will say 1800, just for easy numbers. You had the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, you know, you had Nachman of Breslov, and you had the Kedusha Slavi. The Kedusha Slavi was a, a Mechutan, which means his his child, his child and the first Lubavitcher Rebbe's child married each other. So we're talking about that time period, okay? This, this is just amazing. The last Pusik in the Parsha, you can follow along if you want. In English or Hebrew, I'll read it to you. I'll read you what the article says, and then we're going to read the Kedusha Slavi on this. And it is so different. It's so different. Okay. The last Pasuk, it's um, chapter 47, verse 27. And the Jews settled in Egypt, Beretz Goshen. Like I said before, in the ghetto of Goshen. That's where they lived. Not in Egypt. They did not venture into living there. They lived outside in their own place in New Square, or Muncie, I don't know, whatever, away from, the, he didn't want to be there. But listen to what happens. I'm going to read the translations. Of, again, we're going to use the article translation, their interpretation, and the, uh, and that which is the traditional stuff, and then we'll do the Kedusha Slavery, which is a different angle altogether. Okay? <coughs> and they acquired property. Okay? It's a strange thing for the, the Pasuk to tell us that they, you can wake them up, and that they, they got, they acquired property, and then it says another strange thing. It says, and they were fruitful and they multiplied. Okay? So it says over here, they lived in Goshen, they started buying real estate, and they had a lot of kids. That's what it says. Okay? Now let's read the Arts Girl, they acquired property. Not content with the land that Joseph had given them, they bought more and more land, an indication that they no longer regarded themselves as aliens who were sojourning in Egypt, but as permanent residents, which sounds negative. In other words, they're, they're living there, and they're buying real estate up, like many people in Gullahs who buy real estate up, right? That's what's going on. They are assimilating in some way. The Medrash renders that re renders they were grasped by the land of Egypt, implying that they could not leave, to make sure that they would remain there as long as was necessary. This had further implications that Israel slowly became grasped by Egyptian culture. So this Pesach is saying, not only did they buy up land and have children in Egypt, but they were becoming Egyptians. In a sense, they had begun to slide into assimilation. That's how Art Scroll, and our Art Scroll is following <coughs> the approach of the Kliyakar and the Ibn Ezra. And if you read the Pasuk straight, that's what it seems to say. Now we're going to read the Kedusha Slavery. Totally different entirely. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll talk about it. Okay? It's on the last page if you want to follow along. 
Okay. The Pasuk Vayeshe Yisrael Beretz Goshen, the quote of the Pasuk. Diyadua. Again, uh, we'll talk about what it means, how he says this, but we'll just for the moment. Diyadua, it's known. Kishatzadik Dor Benaklipos. When a tzaddik lives amongst the evil, klipa is the negative um, uh, impurities of the world, mechashavos, hachitzonos, and uh, when, when a tzaddik lives amongst negative energies of thought, mebalbimoso, it causes the tzaddik to have confusion. In other words, when you put on the radio or you're, a tzaddik, I'm not talking about the TV right now. Just let's use radio for a minute. When you 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 a tzaddik puts on the news, reads the paper, walks in the street, and there's <coughs> so much confusion and negative energy, woke thought. I had that yesterday, like I said, that we lost nine hundred dollars because I wouldn't sign a paper stating that I won't have a trans person work for me in this institution. So when all these things come, he says. The tzaddik gets mebalbel, which means he gets, uh, how do you say mebalbel? Confused a little bit. Gets confused. Vihine, and behold. When, God forbid, when a tzaddik comes in, it comes to him thoughts of ahavara, of of bad love, which means, you know, he's walking in the street and he sees something and it triggers his brain because he's seeing some false love, whatever that means. It could be false love for money. It doesn't mean only, only gay stuff. Just right now, we're all focused on gay junk. But, but it could be that he sees people getting overwhelmed financially with food, who knows what. Oh, you're raw or... He just sees something evil, you know, he just sees people hurting each other, or he just sees general. So when the tzaddik is in a society where there's evil in that world, and he's bombarded with this, so he has two choices. Yesh Echad is one type, that you know what he does? He pushes it out entirely from his head. That's the approach, by the way, that you'll find in the yeshiva world, in the religious world, that that's what they'll tell you. You got to get rid of it. You can't look at it. You can't think about it. If you saw something you should have seen, get rid of it, which is what you should do anyway. But you understand, that's what that's one Sadiq says, I, I, I saw some evil in the street because I saw somebody yelling at his wife, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push that away because it's evil. That's one approach. Vyesha Adam is another type of tzaddik. That he holds on to this, what he saw, or what he's feeling. But what he does is, he turns it into some way of servicing God. He, and one approach is you push it away. I saw somebody who is running away from the police with all his strength, because he saw a guy do something wrong. The police are chasing him. So he sees the guy running away. That is evil. So one guy says, I, I can't think about it. I can't believe I'm living in New York and I see this junk. The other tzaddik who's living, seeing the same thing, says, no, no. I'm going to take that thought. 
And I'm going to say, I've got to use, just like that guy ran away using every fiber in his bones in order to get out, get away from the police, I'm going to use every fiber in my body in order to get closer to God or to get away from Averas or whatever. He's going to go now and use it for something good. His example is, if you saw, if he had a thought or he saw some kind of false love, whatever that means, but he calls it evil love, whatever that means. He then says, this look how much I have to love God. If I see two people who should not be loving each other, you know, so instead I'm going to go and say, how much should I love God when these people are doing craziness and I have the real truth, what am I doing? And how am I taking care of my wife when I look and I see whatever, you understand. So he says, if this negative thing people love, so how much, so I certainly should love God so much more. So what's the difference between these two people? Again, one person sees something negative and finish, get it out of here, not interested, it's done. The other person says, I'm obviously not interested, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to do something with what I saw or what I felt. He says, the chilek is, the person who just pushes away the evil, there is no positive fruit that comes out of that negative thing that he experienced. But the one who takes the negative thought and and takes it and does something with it, he goes and he brings life and 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 fruit into holiness. And that's what the Pasuk says. That the Jews lived in Egypt in the land of Goshen. And we know that Egypt was the center of all impurity. So therefore, so they certainly, the religious Jews over there certainly had bad thoughts cast upon them because they're in the middle of Tumor. But Omar, but they said Vayechazubah that they're gonna that they that it says that they held on to the land. So instead of looking at it as they became assimilated, the Kedushas Levi saying no, they held on to the land that negative thought and they made holiness out of it. Whatever they saw that was negative, they made holiness, and that's why the pasuk ends by saying and they were multi- they multiplied and had many children. Those many children were all the positive things that came out of all the negative. A principal, and I was so happy when I saw this today, because I was in a girls' school today, and the principal told me something, and I, I was really, I was blown out by it. She said to me that she told the girls, she had a feeling that if you, the, the world today, there's a term that's used all day long, and it's like, how do you identify like, you know, I identify, whatever that means. I identify like a couch, whatever you want to identify. But you identify, right? And she said, she told the girls, you see what this is telling us spiritually. But just like in the secular world, everything is like, how do you identify? What do you identify? So in the religious perspective on that is, I identify myself as a, 
as a person who's a Baal Chesed, as a giving person. Maybe I'm not, but I identify myself that way, and that will bring me closer to being one because you start thinking of yourself as a Baal Chesed. And that's what she, she told the girls. you got to take this power that the world right now is like focusing on this thing of who, who, who do you, what do you identify as? Because that's what it, it's on every paper. How do you identify? It's like a message. So, you know, you want to be a Talmud Chacham? Identify as a Talmud Chacham. I told her that somebody once went to the, we'll stop with this. I, somebody went to the Balatanya and said, I want to be a Tzaddik. How do I do that? So the Balatanya said, make believe you're a Tzaddik. You'll become a Tzaddik, you know? Like, <laughs> just, that's, that's identifying. That's what the Kedushas lady says that the last Pasuk is talking about. We have two ways. We could make believe that the term identify doesn't exist and just say, you know, it's nonsense, which it is. Or we could say we're going to take that thought and we're going to use it for something good. That was the approach to Hasidism versus the other approach, which is the pushed away, which is what the Kliyaka was saying. You know, I'm not, I'm not being, again, I'm not dissing the Kliyaka, definitely. I, I hope, you know, but that's the deal. It's an interesting, interesting, different way of seeing it. Okay, so now we should eat.